Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Radio Catskill volunteer Joseph Johnson speaks with Dr. Peter Kolasar from Columbia University about the Flexible Flow Management Program that seeks to control the flow of water in the Upper Delaware River. All of that coming up on today's special edition of Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Today was the United Kingdom's first coronation in 70 years. King Charles III was crowned at Westminster Abbey. NPR's Lauren Frere reports from the crowd outside. Thousands of well-wishers braved at times heavy rain to wave flags at the royals as they rolled by in a horse-drawn carriage. A lot of cheering when, when Charles turned up. Stephanie Burns watched from a big screen set up in London's Green Park. But not everyone was cheering. Our taxpayers for hundreds of years have been financing these palaces. Mary Rooks was one of thousands of protesters along the parade route. The royals scaled back this coronation, which takes place at a time of economic crisis and waning support for the monarchy but it'll still cost taxpayers upwards of $125 million. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. The United States and Saudi Arabia are welcoming the first direct talks between rival military forces in Sudan since fighting broke out three weeks ago. The negotiations are being held in the Saudi city of Jeddah. The BBC's Grant Ferret has more. The discussions are officially described as pre-negotiation talks. According to the Sudanese army, they'll focus on the idea of humanitarian corridors, as well as protecting civilian infrastructure, such as hospitals. Washington and Riyadh have urged the warring parties to consider the interests of the whole country and to move towards a ceasefire which would spare the Sudanese people further suffering. The BBC's Grant Ferret. A video recording of former President Trump answering questions about rape allegations against him has been made public. NPR's Dave Mistage reports attorneys for former advice columnist E. Jean Carroll played the video for jurors in her defamation suit against Trump. In video from an October 2022 deposition, Trump repeated a line he's lobbed against E. Jean Carroll to deny the allegations. The only difference between me and other people is I'm honest. She's not my type. I take it the three women you've married are all your type. Yeah. Later in the video, Trump misidentifies Carol as his ex-wife, Marla Maples. Carol claims Trump raped her in a New York luxury department store dressing room in the mid-90s. After Trump called Carol a liar and the allegations a hoax in a social media post, she brought a defamation case against him. With attorneys for both Trump and Carol resting on their cases, closing arguments are expected to take place on Monday. Dave Mistich, NPR News. Gunfire erupted during a Cinco de Mayo party at a Mississippi restaurant last night. 
Authorities in Osun Springs, about four miles east of Biloxi, say one person was killed and four others were wounded. This is NPR News from Washington. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's special edition, Radio Catskill volunteer Joseph Johnson speaks with Dr. Peter Kolasar from Columbia University about the Flexible Flow Management Program that seeks to control the flow of water in the Upper Delaware River. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced special edition of Farm and Country. Hello, I'm Joe Johnson, and I'm a volunteer here at WJFF Radio Catskill. You can usually hear me on Mondays during All Things Considered. With me today is local resident Dr. Peter Kolasar. Dr. Kolasar is Professor Emeritus at Columbia University and a Special Research Scholar at the Columbia School of Engineering and Applied Science. He holds a degree in physics and a doctorate in operations research from Columbia. The list of his positions, accomplishments, and awards is long, diverse, and impressive. Reading through it would take far longer than we have here today. We're here today to discuss the Flexible Flow Management Program, which seeks to control the flow of water in the Upper Delaware River. Dr. Kolasar, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. WJFF has long been a big role in my life. So it's nice to uh, participate and make a little contribution. Oh, that's great. Thank you. We're here today to discuss the Flexible Flow Management Program. Can you briefly describe the program to us? Well, yes, the Flexible Flow Management Program, and we call it often by its acronym, FFMP. Actually, it's a legal binding agreement among four states that border on the river and New York City to control the releases of the water from the three New York City dams on the headwaters. New York City gets half its drinking water from the Delaware. It's really a form of, I call it water imperialism. (laughs) They take that water, (laughs) and they are not in the Delaware Basin, but they take water out of the Delaware Basin to the city. But the down basin states, particularly New Jersey, was very concerned with New York City taking this water out. So there was a big Supreme Court decree in 1954 that gave New York City the right to build its dams and take the water out, but subject to provisions. The FFMP is an outgrowth of those rules that come from the Supreme Court decree, and they dictate the quantities of water that New York City can take for itself, the quantity of water that it must release into the city, into the river, according to the Supreme Court decree, And the goal is to augment those releases to enhance the ecology and the fishery of the upper river and to protect valley residents from floods and also try to maintain adequate water supply so that uh, all of the stakeholders in all these four states and New York City uh, would not suffer the consequences of, of drought. So it's a comprehensive program that controls many, many things about the river. Through the releases, yes. In, in fact, even it even controls water supply for Philadelphia and Trenton by reason of the fact that salt water from the ocean impinges into the Delaware Basin 
And the function of the releases from New York City dams is to repel that salt front so that the water going into Trenton and Philadelphia is not salty. As we'll see maybe later on in our discussion, that is turning out to be one of the most contentious issues because of the impact of climate change. Climate change, increasing level of the sea, increasing salt coming upriver. So how long has the program been in place? You said that the uh, Supreme Court decided this in 1950... 1954. Actually, it was a, a previous Supreme Court decision in 1932 that originally gave the city to build the first of its dams. But since 1954, the Supreme Court decision really dictates the basic premises that New York City could take a certain amount of water, 800 million gallons a day, for its own use. But in doing that, it had to maintain river flows in the river, basically at Port Jervis, uh, New York, Montague, New Jersey, at a certain level. And that's what the Supreme Court said you have to do. Those rules are adequate really for New York City and adequate for the down basin states. But at that time, the 1950s, there was not an environmental movement. So no considerations were at play for the environment of the upper river. And this is where the FFMP comes in place. There were decades of unhappiness and agitation on the part of the environmental, particularly fishing community, about the quantities of water released into the river. New York City was acting in a very, very conservative way. Their mantra was the drought of the century could start tomorrow. So they basically held water behind the dams. By holding the water behind the dams, the river was actually starved of water. Eventually, what happened each spring is that water that was held behind the dams would spill over the top of the dams and be wasted. It would do no ecological good, and it wouldn't do the city any good. So this was a problem that the fishing community had identified for decades and were agitating about. Uh, and it, in uh, 2005, a big thrust was made to try to change those rules, and that's when I got involved in this program. So the FFMP is really trying to keep everybody happy here and satisfy everybody needs here, from the fishermen down to the water supply in New York City and in Trenton and Philadelphia. That's true. It's trying. To, it's trying. It would seem to be almost mission impossible to balance the needs of New York City, first of all, and uh, other municipalities, 15 million people get their drinking water from the Delaware. So that's need number one. It's trying to balance that with the needs of the environment to protect particularly the wild trout of the upper river. It's also concerned with the potential for flooding in the Delaware, in the Delaware Valley. It has the needs of Philadelphia and Trenton and this salt line issue that we just spoke about briefly. And then in addition, New Jersey also does some water imperialism and extracts water from the Delaware for use in central Jersey. So all those interests are trying to be balanced in the FFMB. Was it difficult to get everyone to agree to the FFMP in its present form? Oh, absolutely. Uh, The dictates from the Supreme Court decree and also from the Delaware Compact of 1961 give each of those states and New York City veto power on any changes in these rules. So for any change that you want to make, you have to have unanimous agreement. You need five votes. When I got involved in this issue, 
taking the fishing point of view and wanting to make some improvements for the fish, I never thought that we would be able to get five votes. In fact, I wondered, were we going to be able to get a single vote for any of the ideas that I had? Well, I'm glad you did. Um, so you got involved with the program through your, your fishing hobby. Yes, I was uh, you know, amateur, pretty serious fisherman, but I was totally unaware of the politics. I'd just go out fishing and enjoy myself. And I became informed about these concerns by local media, by the River Reporter newspaper. Series of articles, the River Reporter alerted me to the fact that there was a big controversy. And so I volunteered to help out one of the conservation organizations. I said, gee, I think maybe there's a scientific element to this. And I could help a little because I'm really an applied scientist, statistician, computer science guy. And that's how... That's how I got involved, essentially at a picnic at the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum. There was a booth, and I spoke to those people. And when I got involved, I thought, well, I'll put in an hour here or there, maybe a day or two of work and, you know, piddle around. Little did I know that this became a project that involved me totally full-time with two graduate students at Columbia for about three years in the early intensive phase of the work, and the work has continued now for 17 years. I'm still involved in it, although at a lower level of intensity. So it became an entire new career for me, adding to the other kinds of things I've done. And you just thought you were retiring. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's go back to the biology of this a little bit. Why is water temperature so important to trout? Well, I think it's a matter of evolution. That trout, all species of trout, originated in the northern part of the northern hemisphere. Cold climate. So they are, they are a cold water fish. They're an ancient cold water fish. And so they need cold water and that whole ecology for their, uh, for their metabolism. When the water temperatures get above 68 degrees Fahrenheit, the metabolism of trout start to malfunction. When it gets up to, say, 75 degrees, those temperatures are actually lethal. Now, that's in contrast. In our river, you know, we have trout upriver. Downriver, where I live, Eldred, Barryville, Lackawaxen, the dominant species are smallmouth bass. Smallmouth bass are warm water fish. They love water that would kill the trout. So we have a bifurcated river here. Upriver, the trout. Downriver, smallmouth bass. So it's just the east and west branch and the uh, main river from Hancock down to Lordville, I believe. That is really the the area that we're trying to control the temperatures of here. That's right. The trout fishery actually extends to, say, Calicoon, but only in the spring and early part of the summer. Yet later in the summer, the water warms up at Calicoon. And I've done analysis that indicates there's not enough water in the system to keep things cool down to Calicoon. So Lordville, further up river, is a kind of compromise. It's the it's the spot that the parties to the Supreme Court decree, the four states in New York City, have decided that's the benchmark location, and the benchmark temperature there is going to be 75 degrees Fahrenheit. So you're using the water that's allocated to the program to maintain the temperature in that section of the river. It would be impossible to go farther south of that. That's right. There just isn't enough water in the in the system to do that. 
without compromising the water supply for New York City and the other stakeholders. It must be difficult to really calculate uh, how much water to release and when to release this. What kind of data do you use to make that decision? Well, it is really difficult. Let me uh, make an analogy which will kind of clarify what's, what's at stake here. If you're taking a bath and you fill your bathtub and the water's too warm, you know that you could reduce the water temperature by adding more cold water from the tap. So if you knew how many gallons of water were in the bathtub and you knew the temperature in the bathtub and you knew the temperature of the cold water coming in, you could figure out exactly how much cold water to add to get to a target temperature. There's some basic equations of physics that enable you to do that. What we do on the river is something like that. We have a gauge at Lordville. It tells us how much water is passing Lordville. That's like the size of the bathtub. It tells us the temperature of the water there. Upriver, the dams are releasing cold water from the bottom. We know those temperatures. So basically, we're using the same kind of physics idea to do this kind of calculation. But it's much more complicated than that because the weather has a big impact. The water is moving. The temperatures are not, are not constant. So, but basically, that is the idea. And what we have done in the research is look back at the records on the river. Luckily, we have uh, USGS gauges at many points on the river that record water flows and temperatures going back 50 years. We have records of all that data. We have records from the Weather Bureau. We have records of forecasts from the Weather Bureau. All that data integrated, try to build a picture that gets us back to that bathtub scenario so that we can make a calculation of about how many Millions of gallons have to be released, and at what time, in order to keep the Lordville temperature at that target of 75 degrees. So, essentially, you're using a set of algorithms and just plugging in the data and using that to make a decision. Let me modify that a bit. Uh, Not to make a decision, but to provide guidelines for the decision. So, what actually happens is that I I develop a set of guidelines with my colleagues at, at Columbia, And they have been transmitted uh, to the Delaware River Basin Commission, New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, and a gentleman at New York State DEC, Brennan Terrier. Every morning, he looks at the river, looks at all the gauges, weather forecasts, etc. He has my suggestions, and he has things that he's learning about the river, and he puts that together to make a daily judgment. Do I need to release more cold water? If so, how much? And if so, on on what schedule? So it's a combination of guidelines, science, and a good deal of human judgment. I would imagine that uh, it is quite a difficult decision to make. And I think you also have to gauge not only when to release it, but how much to release. That's right. It's what day do you want to release it on? How much do you want to release? And the exact timing of the release, because the water needs to travel from the reservoir to Lordville to get there uh, at the right time. And in doing that, I want to emphasize this in order to understand what's going on here. You're making a gamble. Brennan Terry is making a gamble each day. And basically, he's always going to be wrong, one way or another. (laughs) He's going to release a little too much or a little too late or, or whatever. And the reason that's a big gamble is that the analysis that I did is based upon a limited amount of statistical data. 
and statistical analysis, a lot of errors and uh, uh, variability and imprecision in that. In addition, he's using forecasts. He's using data from the current uh, gauges. So all of that adds to a variability, and that means that the consequences of any decisions he makes are going to be variable. And he's doing this with a limited budget. So he's sitting there, and he has a bank of water allocated to him by the decree parties, 2,500 cubic feet per second per day of water. Translates to a lot of gallons of water. And he has to decide whether to use it or not. So he says, I could use that today and have an effect, but it might be better to hang on to that water because uh, things may get worse in August, and I wish I had the water then. So it's essentially a series of gambles, and what we're finding is that over the four years that he's been doing this, he's been making basically pretty sound decisions. So I'm quite satisfied with the impact of the program. Yes, I was going to ask you, how you know, how has the program been working? What results have you had? The uh, program has been in effect for uh, four years now, for, for four summers. We know that in the past, the FFMP, even though it was an improvement on the previous rules, couldn't keep the water temperatures at Lordville in that desired range. We know that that happened, and some of the episodes were really very, very bad. So what's happened now, uh, over the over the time period, 2000, 2019, when the program went into effect, 2022 is four years. Brennan made 61 releases, or 61 days, in which he said, I've got, to, I've got to make a release. As a consequence, the judgment was that 19 thermal stress days were avoided, that there were 19 days in which had he not made that release, the water would have gone above 75 degrees. Okay. He made releases on 17 days in which he didn't release quite enough water. So the temperatures got to like 75 degrees, but they kind of stayed there. They didn't get, didn't get much worse. So we've had a, a really quite beneficial impact in reducing the number of days that would have been really serious problems for the trout over what would have happened had we not had the program in effect. And the design has been, been pretty good in that we have been allocated 2,500 CFS days of water, and we basically, each an average over these summers, used about 70% of that water. One year we came very close to running out of the bank, and so we have some concerns over the long run that Perhaps that bank will be too small if we ever get a really, really bad summer. We've been fortunate. The four summers that we faced, none of them were very, very bad in terms of, of high temperatures and low precipitation. Yeah, I know that last July and last August were very, very hot and very, very dry. And uh, it's great that you were able to keep the temperature in a in a range that would be beneficial for the trout. Um, I'm sure the fishermen are happy about that. And uh, I think what a lot of people don't realize is the economic uh, impact of all of this, that the Upper Delaware has quite a um, business uh, model going on up there with fishermen. Oh, yes. Uh, there have been some studies. I'm, I'm, I don't have at hand the numbers, but, but the economic impact from Hancock on down is, is really, really quite, uh, quite significant. 
And what this program has done is it has somewhat enhanced the fishing season from being a season of being basically mid-April, May, and June to extending it through the summer so you have a lot more fishermen coming up for longer time periods. That's great, having more opportunities for uh, sport fishing. So no program is perfect. What issues are face the FM, FFMP, that is quite a mouthful, as we go forward? Well, possibly some big ones. As you said earlier, there are so many stakeholders with conflicting interests. We've got the fishermen on the one hand, and by the way, here in the Delaware Valley, we have the canoe and raft liveries. They have their own interests, which are sometimes in conflict with the fishermen. They want water released in different patterns. Then we've got New York City and the drinking water. We've got New Jersey and its drinking water, Philadelphia and the salt front. So all those issues have got to uh, be mitigated. A big, big issue is that over many decades, New Jersey has felt that it was shortchanged in the fundamental allocations that came out of the Supreme Court decree. And they have been lobbying and agitating for a long time to increase their water allocation. They got so upset about it that in 2015, they actually vetoed the extension of the FFMP, which took us back to the rules, water release rules of 1987, which were actually very, very detrimental to the environment and even hurt New Jersey a bit. But they're doing this as a demonstration of how serious they were. It took two years of negotiation to get a temporary resolution of that issue. What I'm concerned about is that the FFMP is structured in two five-year segments, and the first five-year segment expires this year in May. And I am wondering and I am concerned about whether New Jersey is going to resurrect its concern about its water allocation once again. That could be a stumbling block to extension of the FFMP, which is supposed to be. It's scheduled to be extended to 2028. Whether that will happen or not, uh, I'm not sure. So that's one issue is the dispute basically with New Jersey on one side and a combination of, of Pennsylvania and New York City and New York State, on the other hand, that's a long-standing dispute. And then the new issue coming about as a consequence of climate change and sea level rise about the salt front at Trenton. New York City has announced that it is no longer going to be held responsible for repelling the salt front. The current FFMP has a rule in it that says New York City must maintain releases of enough cold water from its dams to keep the salt front from impinging at Trenton. The city says with rising sea level, it no longer believes that it can do that and it wants to uh, be held harmless from that from that constraint. How that's going to play out is going to be uh, interesting to, uh, to observe. So it sounds like there's going to be a lot of uh, negotiations coming up. I think so. And then we know, we are fortunate, I think, that the FFMP has worked pretty well. This thermal release policy has worked pretty well. But we know the river is going to be under increasing thermal stress due to climate change over the coming years. Those stresses, I predict, are not going to be very dramatic, but they are there. And I believe that the budget that's been allocated, the 
2,500 CFS days of water. We were lucky that it has been adequate to date, but I do believe that that budget should be increased, and that's one of the issues that I propose to work on and to agitate on, basically, again, using statistical data to show the city of the decree parties that there isn't much of a risk to them to allocating a little more water for that program. Well, let's hope they agree. Dr. Kolasar, thank you for joining us here today. I've been speaking with Dr. Peter Kolasar. Dr. Kolasar is is uh, Professor Emeritus at Columbia University and teaches as a special research scholar at the Columbia School of Engineering and Applied Science. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteer Joseph Johnson. Special thanks goes to our guest, Dr. Peter Kolasar, Professor Emeritus at Columbia University. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hi, I'm Pete Madden, Chairman of Radio Catskills Community Advisory Board. As a listener-supported public radio station, community feedback means everything to us. And I'm asking you to play a crucial part in our future planning by participating in our listener survey. We want to know what you like, what you don't like, and what you think might be missing. Your feedback on this survey helps the station set goals, make decisions, and determine next steps. Just go to WJFFRadio.org to take the survey. Your input matters. Thanks.